It's good to see you and many of you uh, for the first time in a long time. Welcome back from your holidays, and we're about to go away on our holidays, and so sorry. That's how we're closing church. Uh, we're going to be leaving on Tuesday, and we're going to spend one week with Roy's family. Um, our brother-in-law and sister-in-law just had a new baby a week ago, um, a boy named Gabriel. Um, and um, then we're going to go spend a week with my family um, in California. And then we're going to go spend some time, just our family, just Roy, myself, and Micah, um, in Hawaii on our way back. So we're looking forward to that. Um, and we'll be back here in February. And of course, we're, we're excited about, um, all the new year, um, all the plans. And we're going to be having a leadership retreat, um, when we come back, which is why we have another weekend that we are closing church. Um, and so please keep the leadership in your prayers as we have that meeting and as we make uh, plans and as we pray over God's uh, will for this church in 2016. And um, of course, if you would like to contribute to that plan, um, please uh, feel free to contact us. And also there's an anonymous survey you can fill out online where you can answer some questions about the church that will give us information about how we can improve church experience for you in 2016. I'm also very excited to have um, Sharon in Melbourne. Um, Sharon probably knows this already, but we've been praying for her to be able to move to Melbourne for about a year now. <laughs> and so we're very excited um, that she's finally here. Our bulletins are going to look nicer. Um, I'm looking forward to all the PR work that she's able to do. Um, but we just like who you are. You don't have to do all that. Um, but we do want you to do that. But um, it's great to have her as well as, um, of course, Sam's mom with us. And I'm so excited that Christian is is here for the first time. Um, so welcome back, Shannon and Ruth, as new mom and dad. Um, I'm sure Christian will give lots of cuddles later. Um, and uh, anyways, and all of you um, as well, it's good to see you all again. And... Um, Micah is, those of you who might be wondering where he is and where I was up until now, he's sleeping in the car. And so um, I was down there and I think Rory went down to relieve poor Bronwyn, who was sitting in the car uh, waiting for Roy to come back. But um, I wanted to throw out a character. And it's not a character with a name. It's it's a personality type or not necessarily, not necessarily a personality type, but a, um, a characterization of of a person. See if you can figure out who it is. I am a character without a name. I have had many faces, but none are recorded because I have always been one of the crowd, but never the one. I was one of Noah's cousins who listened to him preach about the coming flood, believed him, and thought about going in, but never actually packed my bags. I was one of the Israelite soldiers who heard Goliath insulting the name of God day after day, but didn't dare accept the challenge to fight. After all, it was too great a risk, and I just wasn't big or strong enough. I was one of the Jewish captives who bowed when the lowry, the harp, and the horn and the flute were played in honor of the great golden statue 30 meters high that King Nebuchadnezzar built in the plain of Dura. I decided that I should follow the cultural norms. God would understand that it's just how things are here in Babylon. I was one of those who had brought a small lunch with me on the day that Jesus preached on the mountaintop, and I heard the disciples wondering where they were going to get food, and I wasn't going to volunteer my lunch. After all, it was so little, and what could that do amongst so many? I walked by the wounded man on the way to Jericho. He looked like he was going to die anyway, and if I stopped to help him, it's very possible that the very people who attacked him were waiting in line for me, and so I decided to pass on by. 
I was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but when we voted in the council to arrest him, hey, I did not vote to have him crucified. I abstained. I've always known my neighbor Stephen to be a good, kind man, and it's too bad he was stoned to death. I wasn't there at his trial. I was busy tending to my vineyards. I was there when the Jews were murdered during the Holocaust, during the genocide in Rwanda, during the neglect and the abuse of asylum seekers. When my coworkers gossiped, harassed, or bullied someone, when I ignored a homeless person, a lonely person, a different person, I never killed anyone. I never rejected God. I never said I would. But I also never saved anyone. I've never given God my all, even though I always say I will. Can you guess who this type could be? If you don't know, the title should give it away.、Um, today, I want to talk about what it means to be passive. What it means to be a passive believer. And when we think about the word passive, we might think that it means that we're lazy, but not necessarily. You could be a very active person. You could be a very assertive person. You could be a very busy person, doing a lot, filling your life, being very successful. But I'm talking about passivity when it comes to that spiritual growth with God. And the definition of passivity or being passive is someone who allows others to make choices for you, someone who doesn't make a conscious choice for him or herself to go and and stand up for what he or she believes in or to make a decision to act in a certain way. And so, in, to explore this a little bit more, I want us to turn to James chapter four, verses thirteen to seventeen. If you have your Bibles, otherwise it will be on the screen for you. James chapter four. James is found after the book of Hebrews, before First and Second Peter. Now, James is an intensely practical book.、Um, Some people love it. Some people hate it. It's one of those books that, if you ever wonder, well, what should make Christianity different, or what is it practically that a Christian is supposed to be doing or not doing? James is a book that will tell you. <laughs> James talks about not、uh, gossiping, not、um, preferring the rich over the poor, about not neglecting the widows,、um, and so it's a very practical book that talks kind of about the daily Christian life. So when we come to、uh, James chapter four, verses thirteen to seventeen. This is what it says. It says, "Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, 'If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that.' But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil." Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, when we look at this passage, we have to understand、uh, the context. James is not against making plans, and he's not against making money, and he's not against the desire to make money. But this is what James is speaking against. Here's how、uh, one commentator kind of summarized it. He said James is not arguing against the making the money or even the desire to make money, rather he is against the attitude of self-contained certainty, the same smug attitude that marked the false teaching of the false teachers. Such certainty is revelatory of an attitude that, not, that does not take God seriously enough, a mindset for which the making of money outstrips devotion to God in importance. 
In other words, in this scenario, James describes the person who says, "Hey, I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to make uh, this business happen. I'm going to make this much money." And the problem with that is not the planning, but it's in that whole attitude of, "I'm in control. This is what's going to happen." And meanwhile, they have no sense of acknowledgement of God. Of what God's will might be, that it could be contrary to your own plans, and so this person's priorities、um, are about their goals. Then they tower over any kind of will of God, any、uh, desire to know what God's will is, or to even follow it, or consider them in conjunction with that person's own plans. And the danger of that kind of attitude is this. That when you are so focused on fulfilling your own plans for your life, right, your five-year goals, your ten-year career goals, your you know life, relationship, family planning goals, when you're focused solely on those things, and God's will and God's plans and God's desire become secondary and take back seat to your own plans, eventually what happens is that your plans become more and more important. God's plans become less important. And eventually, they don't matter at all, and the person becomes so self-sufficient and so independent of God that, without even pushing God out consciously, they have actually subconsciously or kind of effortlessly faded Him out of their lives, of their planning, of their day to day. And the reason why that is, why that kind of passivity is a silent killer, is that often we think of sin as something bad that we do, right? What are some sins that come to mind? If I say definition of sin or something that is sinful, what comes to your mind? Stealing. Anything else? Killing. Sorry. Adultery. What else? Lying. I think I heard. Yeah, we we think about those things, and so we think, okay, well, if I'm not doing those things, then I'm a good person, right? I'm not hurting anyone. I'm a good person. And the danger of that mentality is that if you define sin as something bad that you do, then you think, oh, I'm a good person for not doing those things. And over time, you think, well, I'm a good person, and you you don't really feel the need for God. You don't feel the need for a savior. And because you don't feel that need, it's so easy to live life thinking you are in control, and to make your own plans, and to continue living, and to think there is nothing wrong. But James redefines sin. So if we go back and look at verse seventeen a little more carefully, he says, "If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it." It is sin for them. Now, there's do, the word "do" is mentioned twice here. In the first "do," the original Greek is just an infinitive "do." In other words, like to be or not to be. It's just theoretical. So, it, in other words, if you theoretically know what you're supposed to do, but then the second "do" is a different verb. The second、uh, "do" is that active participle, the doing, the consistent, constant, everyday doing. And the Greek word for sin,、um, hemartia, is actually literally missing the mark. When you shoot an arrow and you miss the mark, right? You miss the target. So you could reword this whole verse to say, "If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and is not doing it consistently, they have missed the mark." This redefinition of sin 
helps us realize that sin is not just not doing something bad, but it's when we know that there's something good that we should be doing, whether it's helping someone who needs help. When we, when we hear about something, when we read about something, when we pass by and we meet someone in need, when we know and we feel that slight inclination, oh, maybe there's something I can do and we ignore that, right? Then we're missing the mark. We're, we're missing the point. And it's one thing if we do it once and then we feel good about ourselves and we let time pass by. No, it's about that constant, consistent doing, that practical doing that James says is, um, is what is important. This theme of doing what we should, we know we ought to do is found in other parts of the Bible. I'll just spew out a few for you. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 27 to 28. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it now with you. Luke 12 to 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. That was a parable. John chapter 9 verse 41. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. And John thirteen seventeen, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, when it comes to doing, it's very important that we, we understand that the doing does not save us. Um, it's easy to get into the trap of thinking, okay, well then, give me something to do, and I'll do it, and then I'll be a good person, then I'll feel good, then I'm alright with God, and then, oh, you know, I'm off the hook. No, it's, it's, it doesn't work like that. God loves us. And he has given us Jesus Christ. He has offered us eternal life with no strings attached. All we have to do is accept. So salvation is a gift. It has nothing to do with what we do. But the reason why the doing is important is because once you have said, all right, God, I accept you into my life. I accept the fact that you have died for me. I accept your gift of salvation and eternal life. If we then say, I've accepted all those things, but I actually don't want you to influence the choices I make. I don't want you to be a part of the decision about who I marry, what career I choose, how I treat my neighbor, um, how I treat my child. If we don't incorporate God then into any of the daily life that matters, then eventually we're saying, God, you actually don't matter. You're not important. And then in time, that eternal life that we originally wanted, we no longer feel that extreme need for it. Because after all, our life here is pretty good. We figured it out. We're going, we're cruising. Why do we need that, right? And the danger also of this kind of passivity is that not only does it make us numb to um, the need of God, but even when God reveals his will to us, we become very deaf to it. It's kind of like this. When I uh, first moved to New York City, um, I know Galen and Janelle were in New York, and I think they're coming later on today. Uh, I think they're flying back right now. But um, when I first moved to New York City, I couldn't sleep well for about two months because it was so loud. I lived um, on a third-story walk-up, and you know, 
old building. You can hear everything. And New York City, no matter where you are in New York City, it's loud. You know, all night long, there's cars beeping and sirens roaring. And so for about two months, I just couldn't sleep. But after about two months, my body got used to it. And so then I slept really well. And whenever visitors would come and stay with me and they couldn't sleep, I'd be like, what? You didn't sleep well? <laughs> you know? It'd be a surprise to me when they would say, oh, it was so loud because I had tuned it out. And the funny thing is when I eventually moved out of New York City and moved to Berrien Springs, Michigan, where there is nothing and there's like one traffic light for the entire town, I couldn't sleep for two months because it was so quiet <laughs> because I'd gotten so used to the noise. And so... You know, physically we adapt, but spiritually we adapt also. And so when we are exposing ourselves um, to making choices that are without God in the equation, we get so used to it. So even though God's voice might be speaking to us and guiding us, the more we ignore it and make our own choices without him, the more we become deaf, not because he's not speaking, but because we've, we've learned to tune him out. And so in order for us to reawaken our sensitivity to God's will, in order to go from that passive, silent, um, fading away of God from our lives, we have to once again learn to simply follow through with the small choices that matter. It's so easy for us to think that our lives are within our control. And, you know, James is really getting to the heart of that. He's, he calls it arrogance, but... You can call it pride, you can call it many things, but he gets to the heart of us thinking that we can control things. And he says, hey, you don't even know if you'll be living tomorrow, he says. We take so much for granted, and we hate it when things don't go our way. As you guys know, I'm 20 weeks pregnant, well, a little past now. Um, and as most of you know, I really, really wanted a girl. <laughs> I really wanted a girl. Um, I love Micah. And I thought, you know what? It'd be great to have a little girl. My whole life, I dreamed of having a girl. I had girl names picked out since I was like 12. And so, uh, you know, when I found out I was pregnant, everyone was like, oh, what do you think it's going to be? And I was like, I think it's going to be a girl. Um, and my sister was so convinced that it was going to be a girl. She had gone out and already bought little dresses. Um, and then on Wednesday, I went to get my sonogram. And the sonographer went through all the body parts and said, it's a boy. And when, when, I, when, when she said that it was a boy, my heart sank. And don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful for a healthy child. And uh, it didn't take me long to be, you know, very happy. But in that moment, I was very disappointed. I did shed a few tears. <laughs> um, and my life, like 10 years from now, flashed before me where like Roy and the boys are like eating up all the food in the fridge and then they go off to go mountain bike and I'm home alone like by myself but anyways not because anyway I won't go into that but and so you know it's so easy for us as human beings to make our own plans make our own goals and then we become shattered when it doesn't happen that way and it's in those moments that we realize that oh it wasn't actually in my control in the first place um, but we don't often get to that place. We go months and years sometimes pursuing our dreams, pursuing our plans with, without God in the equation at all. And then when the plans flip on us and when they don't go our way, and then we wonder, okay, now what? And I guess that's the danger I'm trying to prevent us from. Whereas if we change that attitude slightly and even on a daily basis, even the small things, if we were to consider God's will, 
communicate with him, listen to what he has to say, and we try to follow his will so that our plans are secondary to God's plans. Then when things don't work out, we don't have to flip out. We don't have, and, and it's okay to have emotions and to be disappointed, but we can move on. We can say, all right, God, what is the new thing you want to do? What is the new way? And we can still delight in the fact that we are still in God's plan. Whereas when you make your own plans and they don't work out, especially if it's a huge deal, you lose your job or, you know, your relationship doesn't work out or something really big happens in your life. And we, we got so used to leaving God out of the equation. We get to that place and we, all of a sudden we're wondering where God is now that we need him, but we haven't been listening to his voice. And so, we're searching for that voice and he's speaking, but we've, we've gotten so used to tuning him in and out that we can't even hear. And that's, that's the danger of this passive, passive, um, Christian experience of neglecting God and putting him to the second back seat every day, every day, over and over again. There's a book, um, by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters. Um, some of you may have read it before. And I just want to quote a passage from, uh, from it. Screwtrip Letters is a book that C.S. Lewis wrote that is kind of inventive, imaginative. He imagines what the demons talk about and what their world might be like. And, you know, it's an imaginary story. And in this book, he imagines a demon named Screwtape talking to his nephew, Wormwood, <laughs> about how to tempt people, giving advice as good uncles do. And so, bear with me as I share this passage um, with you. He starts out, Obviously, you're making excellent progress. My only fear is, lest in attempting to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to be content with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with the vague, though uneasy feeling that something he hasn't been doing very well lately. And as the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and his habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. I think he would say, you don't need a good TV show, just need like 20 seconds on YouTube, right? You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roitering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought to have done, nor what I liked. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge him away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. 
Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, screwed tape. And his point is simply this: you know, when you do something really bad, you know it's bad, and so there is a sense of guilt that leads you to hopefully repentance and your your realization that you need God after all. But the danger of pass- passive sin, or that sin of not doing what you're supposed to be doing, is that you don't realize that it's sinful. You don't feel like it's sinful, and you continue your life in that in that way until you really have come so far from God, but you don't realize it. It's like the frogs. They say that when you put a frog in a hot frying pan, they'll jump right out because they know it's hot. But if you put the frog in a cold frying pan and you just warm it up in degrees. They get used to the warmth. It's a little uncomfortable, but it's all right. And before you know it, they've died because of the heat that just gradually turned itself up. And I think that's really the danger of passivity. It is a silent killer because we don't realize how far we really get from God when we daily ignore and neglect Him in the small things. It's really the small decisions that matter. You know, before we can become Davids and Daniels and Josephs and Jesus, God doesn't ask us to do great things. He doesn't ask us to do you make great sacrifices. He just asks us to do small things. He says, "Take, eat. This is my body." Okay. All they had to do is take and eat the bread and accept the sacrifice that God gave to them. And He said, "Hey, read these words. These are words of life. They speak about me." We can all read. He doesn't ask us to go off and you know give our bodies and to be, become martyrs or to sell everything we have. He, you know, he may ask one day to some of us, but first he asks of us the small things in life. You know, this week the U.S. banned microbeads in、um, cosmetic products and beauty products and and kind of soaps and toothpaste and things like that. And the reason why they banned、um, they banned I guess the production of them、um, by the end of 2017, and there's been talk amongst people here in Australia about banning banning microbeads here, and it's because microbeads you know you know you know what they are they're the little tiny things if you've ever done like facial scrubs or body scrubs or sometimes toothpaste will have them.、Um, I used to like them. I didn't you know they feel nice, and so. Um, I didn't realize that the reason why they、um, they're dangerous, even though they're so small, right, is that even though they're small, they're made of plastic, and so they don't dissolve. And so then, when you do your body scrub or toothpaste or whatever, it gets flushed down to the water, which goes into the marine,、um, into the ocean. And because they're tiny little beads of plastic and don't dissolve, they actually pollute the waterways and they attract. Other kind of pollutants to, to kind of cling to them, and eventually, you know, for us it might just be a little bit. But when everybody's doing that, billions of them end up in the waterway,、um, harming the marine life. And they've known this for quite some time, but it's taken a while to finally pass the law、uh, in America. And now there's there's been campaigns in Australia since 2014 to ban those products.、Uh, there's a man named John D,、um, the founder of The organization do something,、um, who has since 2014 been saying, "Hey, these microbeads are harming the environment." And I've been, you know, reading about them a lot this week in the news.、Um, 
and how Woolworth and Coles decided this week to also ban products. Um, and you know, it's, it's amazing. These tiny little things that you would think would be insignificant, but that actually cause a lot of harm. And you know, someone, someone out there said, you know what? I wonder what these things do. And someone looked into it and said, Hey, we need to do something about this. And someone said, let's pass a law. And you know, it's, it's those individuals who said, we're going to make a decision about the impact these small things are having. And I think it's time for us to do the same. I think it's time for us to look at our lives, look at our hearts and, and say, you know, these small things that I've been ignoring, these small things that have been part of my daily life, um, what, what are the real consequences and results of those small things? Could it be that they are harming in a cumulative effect my life and my world and those around me? And to actually say, okay, instead of being a passive Christian and ignoring that or to, or, um, just kind of going with the flow, I'm going to do something and to make a decision to follow through once again on those small decisions. The small decision to, to be at church. It's a small decision, but by placing yourself in an environment where you can change, an environment where God can speak to you, you are opening yourself up to becoming then an active believer of doing them something about making choices. Something as small as reading just one paragraph a day, right? One verse a day. You don't have to, you know, force yourself to do something huge. Just something small. And the important thing is following through and doing that starting today. So I want to encourage you in 2016, let's not allow passivity to lead us down a path that 10 years from now we look back and regret. But instead, let's say, God, I know there's something that you want me to do that I have been ignoring or neglecting. Give me the motivation and the courage and the strength, God, to just start with that one decision today. And the more we say yes to that one decision in time, we will hear more and more of God's voice. We will know greater things that he wants in our lives, greater potential that he sees in us. And eventually then we can impact the world in a way that matters. So may God bless you. And may that be something that we can all share and look forward to in 2016.